The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight, for the uh, opportunity we have to study your word, for the opportunity we have really by faith in your word to be drawn into your presence. I really pray that we would be refreshed tonight. I pray that we'd be renewed. The scripture says in Psalm 23, you restore our souls. I pray that you'd restore our souls by a contemplation of God. I pray, you know, it it says in scripture, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Lord, I pray that we would come to you tonight and drink. I pray that a, a contemplation of God and of, of the attributes of God and the scriptures concerning that would be so strengthening to us. I pray it would also be convicting that we would be, be aware of sin in our lives and would we'd repent of those sins and turn away from those things. And I pray that it would be challenging to us also that we would see new good works that we can do. Um, all of this just flows from the fountainhead of studying God. So I pray for that, Lord, most expectantly. I pray that you would help me, O oh Lord, to teach faithfully and um, just strengthen me and uh, all of us to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. So please forgive me for my, my voice. I don't know it's that time of year, but uh, I sounded good this morning and, and bad now, so that's kind of how it goes, but it's uh, degenerating. But tonight we're going to look at uh, some more attributes of God. I don't know how far I'm going to get, but uh, we're going to begin with uh, an attribute that it seems to me uh, is the most important one for the human race to hear in its sinfulness. I think that's the way I would look at it. I wouldn't say that the holiness of God is the most important attribute of God, but it seems to be the most emphasized. Um, and I think that we can actually um, show that from the fact that it is re- repeated so so powerfully in some key verses. Um, I don't think we should ever take any of the attributes of God and compete one against the other. God is all of these things all the time. But uh, there must be some reason why uh, the seraphim are crying out, holy, 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 all the time. seems like they're picking out an attribute. seems like they're focusing on an attribute. It seems like there's an attribute in particular that just overwhelms them. Uh, I don't think it would, that God would be offended if, if uh, they were just saying majesty, majesty, majesty all the time. But, you know, he doesn't coerce this praise. It just seems to flow from the seraphim. And they say this, they say, holy, holy, holy. So for me, I think it's worthwhile for us to study the holiness of God. What do we mean by the holiness of God? Wayne Grudem gives this this definition of the attribute. God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. God's holiness also means that he is separated from his creation and is wholly other than anything else in his creation. So, you know, I think it's good for us to concentrate on this word separation. Separation. So holiness has to do with separation, um, that God is separate from evil and that God is separate from creation. And I think these are the two aspects. If you get that, then you understand the biblical doctrine of, of holiness. <clears throat> we'll talk also about it being a communicable attribute, how we also are called on, on to be separated as well unto God. So we'll talk about that. But let's look at some scriptural support. And I've already alluded to one, probably the most famous, Isaiah 6, 1 through 3. In the year that King Uzziah died, it says there, I saw the Lord seated on on his throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. 
And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And so there is the uh, ascription of praise by the seraphim. They see God. They cover their faces. They're in His presence and they're crying aloud, Holy, holy, holy. Um, and so this is a, a, a tremendous thing. It's been noted by, by many that there is no other attribute in the Bible that's repeated three times like this. The thrice statement, love, 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 or light, 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 or righteousness, righteousness, righteousness. It just seems to flow from the seraphim, the holiness of God. Again, I think it's important for us to notice that the seraphim are not, uh, are not um, wicked. They're not sinful. Uh, they have nothing to hide. They're not Adam and Eve cowering in the garden. You know, because of, of wickedness, God has already weeded out all of the wicked angels. They are demons and they are out of His presence. So there is nothing in, um, in them that they're afraid of. And yet, still, they're covering their faces and they're calling holy, holy, holy. And so there is an aspect of God's greatness and His holiness and all that that's going to create, I think, in us a similar reaction even in the new heaven and the new earth. Um, I don't fully understand that. I think we will have a mixture of whatever it is the seraphim we're feeling here plus the familiarity of the prodigal son returning to his father and the father running and embracing him. There's going to be some kind of combination of those feelings in heaven that I can't fully understand. Okay, But here are these holy holy angels and they are crying out, holy, holy, holy. Revelation 4.8 it says there, each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So here we have again the same statement, Holy, holy, holy. Isaiah 5.16, But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by His justice, and the holy God will show Himself holy by His righteousness. God will display Himself holy. He will, know, he will be known as holy. And he wants to be known as a holy God. Again, Psalm 99, 1 through 3. The Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim, let the earth shake. Great is the Lord in Zion, he's exalted over all the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. So after all of those descriptions, then we get this simple statement, God is holy. There's this sense of the, of the holiness of God in Psalm 99 and the greatness of God. Psalm 71, 22. I will praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praise to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. Uh, we could be here the rest of the night if we just did a concordance search on the word holy. Uh, it wouldn't really be hard. And so it's not actually very difficult at all to establish this attribute in Scripture. God is holy. All right, so it's just used by God. And let's see if we can see this, this um, idea of separation. Okay. Again, there are two aspects of holiness. Separation from all creation and separation from all evil. These are the two aspects of God's holiness. First of all, separation from all creation. Uh, Psalm 97, verse 9. For you, O Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. And so I think this particular verse and many other verses, Isaiah 6 as well, um, God, I think, uses elevation, loftiness, height, altitude, so to speak, to give a sense of his holiness, that God is far above us. You understand what I'm saying? He is exalted high above us, this kind of thing. And so, you know, I, I think we need to understand this relationally, as I've said before. Uh, 
God is omnipresent. He is no more in one place than he is anywhere else. We learn that. Well, if that's the case, then how then this exalted, high and lifted up language? Well, it must be relational. It must have to do with his position in the universe rather than a denial of his omnipresence. You understand what I'm saying? He's no more up there than he is down here. If I descend to the depths, you are there, right? So God is everywhere, but God in relation to us is high and lifted up, you see. And so Jesus establishes this, doesn't he? When, he, when he's praying, he looks up to heaven. He looks up to heaven. And uh, you see this actually in him numbers of times. Jesus himself, what happened after the 40 days after his resurrection? He ascended to heaven, right? He went up, you know? And so this whole idea of elevation is, I think it's, it's again this relational side of the greatness of God. And I think if you're going to zero in on one attribute, I would choose either majesty perhaps, but also this idea of holiness, that God is high above us, uh, separated from us. <clears throat> Isaiah 40, 25 and 26, to whom will you compare me or who is my equal? I'm going to be like totally mute by the end of this time. I, I think I'll have no voice left. But it's a good way to spend yourself on behalf of the Lord, right? Uh, you won't listen to this tape. It'll be too hard to listen to. So uh, I will have no voice left when this is over. I'm sure of it, but we'll keep going. Isaiah 40, 25 and 26. Thank you. Who knows? Maybe this will help. Just a moment. I never do this, but I'm going to do it now. Thank you. To whom will you compare me or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and his mighty strength, not one of them is missing. So we have this idea of the greatness of God. He is the Holy One and he's separated from all creation. And God uh, calls each one by name. Again, Psalm 113, verse 4 through 6. The Lord is exalted over all the nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens? Think about that now. Think about that. I mean, you you just ponder that and the earth. But you ponder that. and, And, you know, you have a sense of the immensity of God by looking at the heavens, right? Seriously, I mean... Heaven, even the highest heavens, can't contain God, right? So that gives a sense of immensity, right? Well, what do you get from this? He stoops down to look on the heavens. I mean, what do you get out of that? What does that, what does that verse do for you? He stoops down to look on the heavens. Yeah, he's above us. So are the heavens, for that matter. I mean, way above us. So high above us, we can't even reach them. And God stoops down to look on them. I mean, that ought to make you feel small. You know, and, and I, I think that's the whole thing is that this gives a sense of this vast gap. You know, this, this just infinite gap between God and all creation. It's just really immense. God has to condescend to interact with any created being. Really, I think this has to do also with the faith of the devils. You know, if you think about it, that even says even the demons believe and shudder. You know, you might have this idea that in the heavenly realms, they're just seeing God all the time and they're just, you know, right there. No, they're not. God has to reveal himself to them like he reveals himself to us. Similar and different, I think. But, you know, they have to believe that he exists. The demons do. And they do <clears throat> believe that he exists. But what does that imply? Well, that, that, that in some sense, God has to reveal himself even in the heavenly realms. So again, that gives a sense of the immense separation between God and all created beings, even the powers and principalities and rulers and all that. So God is an immensely um, exalted being. 
you know, A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says, talks about it in this way, saying there is, there, uh, that we are far closer to the archangels than we are to God. Because there's an infinite gap between God and an archangel, but there's a finite gap between the archangel and us. So we're actually far closer to being, you know, to an archangel than we are to God in terms of essential being. So that's the separation of God. And what word will we use for that? Holy. Holiness. The holiness of God. Um, why is it beneficial for us to meditate on that aspect of God's holiness? His separation from all creation. What does it do to you to think about that? Flynn? Yeah, that is very important, isn't it? I mean, how many times in the Old Testament does it talk about who is like you among the gods? There is no God. I mean, he's comparing himself to the gods. Well, it seems to me like the number one gods are like us. You know, I mean, we worship ourselves over any other. We idol, Don't we idolize ourselves? Isn't that what selfishness is all about? And so basically God is saying, I'm just so infinitely above you. You ought to worship me, not you. Yeah, go ahead. I just think it's incredible when you think about that, So there's another application. If you really meditate on the infinite separation between God and all creation, then the incarnation becomes, well, it becomes mysterious then, doesn't it? Like it always should be. I mean, that God would stoop, that Jesus would stoop and condescend to become a, uh, you know, a, a human being is really amazing. All right. So I think it, it just, we can't meditate too much on the holiness of God. And maybe this aspect uh, is a little less familiar of the two. That of the two, you know, we might think of God's separation from wickedness and evil and that God's holy and that he would never do anything evil or wicked. Um, but I think this one, um, you know, is beneficial for us as well um, to meditate on. Secondly, of course, the holiness of God is separation from all evil. Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Okay. First John 1.5, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. James 1.13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. You know, so God is just, God hates evil. He hates wickedness. He hates darkness in that he's light. And if you look at those three verses in particular, there is so much mystery there, isn't there? I mean, the ultimate mystery of theology is where then did evil come from? If God just so much hates evil, and created the universe completely out of nothing. Where then did the evil pop up from? You know, it's not a question anyone can answer. We really don't know. We just have to use the language that God in some way, for his own purposes, tolerated the appearance of evil, but didn't create it. He didn't, he didn't form it. All right, it just came. But God himself, in his own being, there is nothing evil in him at all, but only good and only pure uh, light all the time. So God is separated from evil. Uh, Habakkuk 1.13, you know, God can't even look on it. He can't even look on it, and he can't tolerate it. Sure does seem like he tolerates it. <laughs> sure does seem like he tolerates it. But I think what that means is he can't ultimately tolerate it. He will have it out of his universe, and he is definitely working toward that. He is definitely wanting it out, and that has to do with his his holiness. So these are the two great aspects of holiness, God's separation from all creation and a separation from all evil. We also see God's total dedication to his own name. God um, uh, is dedicated to his own holy name. Psalm 138, verse 2, I will bow down toward your holy temple and will praise your name uh, for your love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. 
So that's a great verse, isn't it? There are other translations that uh, don't carry the same idea. But I've looked at it in the Hebrew, and I think this is, this is a good translation, that God has exalted above all things his name and his word. What does that mean to you, that God has exalted above all things his name? So um, there is simply, in one sense, a supremacy over everything mm-hmm. in the universe. Any name that can be named. So the greatness of, of God high above all those names from Ephesians 1. That's, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Anything else? Yes, Bill. Yeah, I like in one place where a theophany in the Old Testament uh, says, why do you ask me my name? It's beyond comprehension. You know, that kind of thing. You know, I love that statement, you know. It's beyond comprehension, but that's going to be kind of the work of, of the redeemed and all in, in, for all eternity is studying the name of God and understanding who he is. So, again, this is an idea of holiness. I think God has exalted his name above all uh, the rest of creation. Okay, all right. So this is a communicable attribute. Remember what that means. That in some way we, as created beings, can share this attribute. It can be said of us that we are holy, or that we should be holy, etc. Uh, it would never be said of us that we should be self-existent. Uh, that cannot be. But this is an attribute that's communicable. It's something that should be true of us. That could be true of us. So God's prime message here, the, perhaps the greatest attribute I think that God desires to communicate to this wicked race, is His holiness. Although God is loving, merciful, and gracious, we never hear those attributes repeated thrice like this. Love, love, love is the Lord. Or mercy, mercy, mercy is the Lord, etc. But we do see this, and I think repetition is there for a reason. And it isn't just once, it's twice in Isaiah 6 and in Revelation uh, 4, lest we you know, should think uh, that it was just you know, one time that the seraphim were calling this. So clearly this is a key message. And if, if you don't think this, you just have to look, just, just do a word search on the, on the word holy. I mean, study the book of Leviticus and see how many times the word holy or holiness shows up in Leviticus. It seems to be the whole point of that book. That's where I'm at in my yearly reading, too. Bald men and leprous sores and running like white and yellow hairs and all that. I was talking to my kids about that. And I was like, what is this? Why is it in there? You know, <laughs> you know there's long, long, you know, discussion of skin diseases and baldness and stuff, you know. But, you know, the best I can make of it is this, that clearly physical disease is such a big part of the sin problem in the world, and there must be at least some extended treatment of it in the Bible. And so this is one of them, that plus Jesus' healing ministries and all the others. But, I mean, it's just, uh, it's there, so deal with it. So I read it, and uh, every year, and I think about running sores and priests looking at it, and you know, I always wondered is why is it when, when the things over their whole body, they're clean, but if it's only the only part of the body, they're not. I, have you ever wondered? There must be some reason for that. Some dermatologists will tell me why. But uh, at any rate, let's just move on at this point. We'll just move on. 
All right. Much of God's organization of the universe points to his holiness right from the very beginning. Uh, Genesis 2, 3, it says, And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating uh, that he had done. Now, I think the Sabbath rest is really significant. The image I've, I've gotten in my mind of the Sabbath rest is that God created the universe and then basically sat down on his throne to rule it. It's not that God was exhausted. It was that God was sitting down to rule. Um, you know, and that's really the image I get is that, that there's this immense, beautiful, majestic throne room and God just kind of processes through it, turns around and there's this, like this moment of hesitation and then he sits down on the throne and he's ruling it. That's the seventh day. That's what I get out of it, etc. I don't think in any way that God was exhausted by all the creating that he had done and needed to take a Sunday afternoon nap. Um, but, but rather it was just um, a setting apart of God really as holy and a setting apart of a day to honor him, uh, etc. So that's the sense I get. Um, and again, you see that uh, communicable idea is that God made the day holy. And the day itself is a created thing. And so that's the beginning right away of the concept of some things being set apart as holy. You see? That day is the first of all of that. And you're going to see it huge in the Law of Moses, how, how they were a people set apart unto God as a holy people. And there would be vessels set apart and they would be written right on it, holy to the Lord. So there's this, I mean, that's the slogan of the book of Leviticus is holy to the Lord. A people set apart unto God, a people that are holy, etc. So we see that again. So this is especially done for man that he might uh, revere God as holy, might be holy himself. We are holy then as we live exclusively unto and for the name and glory of the Lord as he does. The Law of Moses is a, a, a book of holiness as we talked about just a moment ago. The book of Leviticus is dedicated to teaching the holiness of God. Exodus 3, 5 uh, says, Do not come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Now what is that? Well, I think uh, holy ground is ground that's set apart as unique, ground that's set apart as special. In this ground, you will have an encounter with God unlike anything you've ever had in your whole life. Again, Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and, here's the word, a holy nation. A holy nation. Again, a nation set apart unto God separated in some sense from the rest of uh, the nations. By the way, I think a lot of the so-called ceremonial laws of Moses were to do that, to kind of establish and make clear that they were a separate people. The dietary regulations, circumcision, a variety of commands that are really somewhat bewildering to us today. Um, There are just some commands you read them and you just wonder, you know, how does that fit in? Um, and clearly those things have been fulfilled. But I, I think one of, the, one of the keys is that in this way, God set the Jews apart as a unique or a peculiar people, a holy people. So that's what I think of, whether it's fringes and tassels and garments and, and like the hair of the head and all that kind of stuff. They're just different ways that the people were to be uh, set apart, you know, holy. Exodus 26, 33, hang the curtain from the clasps and place the ark of the testimony behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. So here is a a degree of separation even greater. So, you know, there's holiness and then there's high holiness or the holy of holies, that kind of thing, the most holy place. You get that sense with the tabernacle. And uh, Exodus 30, 37, do not make any incense with this formula for yourselves. Consider it holy to the Lord. So there's this incense. If you make this incense and you use it for yourself, you violated the law. This is to be holy to the Lord. It's God's own stuff. And you're only to use it to worship God. 
And so that was the sense of it. So the recipe for it is right there in the law, but you're not supposed to make it. <laughs> I find that interesting, don't you? You know, so there it is. I mean, we can all read about it, but we're not to act on it in any way. We're just supposed to know that the recipe was given so that they could make it and give it to God, but it was supposed to be just for him, holy to the Lord. And then Leviticus 11:44, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves about on the ground. Now, that is the essence right there of a communicable attribute. Be X because I am X. That's, that, that is right there. That's a communicable attribute if ever there was one. In this case, it's holiness. Be holy because I'm holy. And so we are created to be like God and definitely in this issue of holiness. Okay? The sacrifice of Christ then accomplishes holiness, 10.10. Hebrews 10, 10, sorry. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Boy, that's a powerful verse, isn't it? When you're considering holiness, the statement here is that we have been made holy once for all. That's really a powerful thing, isn't it? We uh, have been set apart unto God as his own. We have been separated from sin in a very significant and real way by the sacrifice of Jesus. It was for holiness that God did it so that we could be holy because he is holy. Therefore, Christians are called on to be holy, and that is separate from all evil, living from God's, for God's glory alone. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, but just as he, call, he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. So when you think of holiness then, your own personal holiness, the communicable attribute, now we're talking about not God's holiness, but ours, what comes into your mind, the idea of holiness? What does that mean to you, holiness? Right. Yeah, very good. I mean, you look at that, I mean, in terms of what you look at, okay? Yeah, go ahead, Ted. Holiness. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So it's being separated from the things of the world that make that unholy yeah. and separated unto the perfect will of God. Absolutely. Um, I, would, I might uh, add this um, uh, verse. Um, I, may, I may have trouble finding it here because I'm not sure whether it's in First or Second Corinthians. But um, Yeah, it's in Second Corinthians. Hang on a second. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter, um, yeah, here it is. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 um, and verse 14 and following. It says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do, right, what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony could there be between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. 
As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Is that not a command of holiness? I mean, that's the very thing. It's that, there's that word separation. Be separate from them. Come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And then chapter 7, verse 1, just really, I think, is the consummation of that. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. That's really what it means to be, come out and be separate. Is to, it purify yourself from anything that contaminates your body or your spirit. That kind of covers it all, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, anything that would contaminate you. Yes. I find it helpful to meditate on presence of the Lord, the Holy Spirit within mm-hmm. me, mm-hmm. and then um, separating myself is a matter of not allowing certain things to mask <coughs> that holiness that is within me through the Lord's presence, and uh, I particularly think about it, you know, we have the mind of Christ, well, if I allow the things of the world to mask that, I can't really understand it, but I, I meditate on the holiness that is there, mm-hmm. not because of anything I've done, <coughs> but because of Christ putting the Spirit within me, mm-hmm. and then that helps me, you know, that I start from that starting point, not that I have to deny myself, mm-hmm. but I start from the holiness that He placed within me. Mm-hmm. That's very good. You know, I'm thinking about, you know, just so many verses. In John uh, 17, 17, Jesus, as He was praying to His Father for us, said, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And so there, I think it means just set them apart as different from the world. Set them apart, God, by the word. And so therefore, a church has to minister the word if its people are going to be separated. It's really the word that separates us from the rest of the world. Michael, go ahead. Yeah, most of the day I'm preparing for a, uh, a lecture tomorrow at Southeastern on English Puritanism and their doctrine of assurance of salvation. How can I know that I'm that I'm a Christian? How can I know that I'm I'm justified? And you know, the consistent answer that 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 you know the Puritans gave, that Jonathan Edwards gave, it, it has to do with personal holiness, probably more than any other way. It's there's this principle of holiness in your life. You're hungering and thirsting for it. You make sacrifices for it. You fight the battle for holiness. The Holy Spirit puts to, to death the misdeeds of the body. That's it. You know, and it's something that you do. It's it's you and God and your flesh and the world and the devil, and that's it. And your assurance just really is proportional to your battle there, I think. The more successful you are in that personal holiness battle, the stronger your assurance will be. And and I and I do say it that way. It's got to do with success and works and working out your salvation with fear and trembling. It doesn't have to do with your standing before God, but it sure does have to do with your assurance. And uh, I think it's actually good to have no good assurance if you've been in a real season of sin. Uh, that's not a time for real strong assurance. That's a time for going back to the cross and saying, what is happening in my life and crying out and wailing and all the stuff we did with James 4 recently. But Ted, you're going to say something else. Yeah, just uh, also in Romans 13, it says, let us walk honestly 
except in the day not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envy, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Mm-hmm. Just the idea there that the holiness we're talking about is not our independent holiness, mm-hmm. but putting on the likeness of Christ. Mm-hmm. Amen. Friends, this is the battle that we face in the in life. This is it. This is this is why you came to church today. You know, this is the, so that you could be equipped to fight this battle of holiness. Yes, go ahead. Um, when he just said, he reminded me, it's a corporate holiness as well. It's mm-hmm. not just me all by myself trying to do better things. Yeah. But it is a, as a corporate body of Christians as a whole. Amen. Yeah. So there's you just keep these two things in mind: separation from all creation. That's God's holiness. And then our reflection of that is separation from the world, all right, that we are a unique and a separate people. But for us, it's especially that aspect of separation from wickedness and evil and anything that would contaminate us or defile us. One more comment, and then we'll go on to the next one. Somebody, yes, one. I think I think Jesus' prayer in John 17 is the best way to keep a good balance there. Father, I do not ask that you take them out of this world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So whenever you have that word from, there's a barrier. So there's some kind of barrier between us and the evil one and the world. But we're not taken out of the world. So Jesus, I think, definitely in his incarnation is the best role model for us. Completely immersed with sinners and yet completely holy and undefiled and pure from them. You know, you always get the feeling that he could just come right into a den of iniquity and pretty soon everything's quiet and he's teaching them some parable or they're all, you know, I mean, he's not in any way contaminated by them and it's just impossible. They assumed he was glutton and a drunkard, friend of tax collectors and sinners and that kind of thing. But he is able, so he, Flynn, I think is our role model. So the separatistic groups that, that put a literal barrier between themselves and the world and just tried to be holy in there, I think they failed anyway. I think you'll look at them and they had problems with immorality. The, the monasteries did, you know, there, there are issues there. But I just think the two infinite journeys go together and you can't choose one or the other. You can't say, I'm just going to be holy and forget the world because that's just not possible. That's not what God did by sending his son. Go ahead, Andrew. Yeah, actually, I would say that there is uh, objective and subjective grounds for assurance, not just what God's doing in your life, but it starts with objective. That's those things that are separate from you. In other words, there are just some things that are true of you, whether you live or die. Or not true of you, but they're true whether you live or die. Jesus died. He rose again. Bible's true. All these promises, you know, if anyone who comes to him, he'll never drive them away. All these things are just true, true, true. And that's your best and highest form of assurance. It's just written there, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I definitely qualify uh, as a sinner. <laughs> so save me, Lord. And that's your, your first and, and strongest level of assurance. And so it's always best to look away from yourself for assurance. But then there are two other le- levels of subjective assurance. One is what is God doing in my life? Is there a principle of holiness in my life? You know, am I separated from evil? Am I putting sin to death? Am I fleeing from the world, you know, like 1 John 2? 1 John 2 is the ultimate what is God doing in my life assurance book. That's what it's for. 
This is how we know that we've come to know him if we obey his commands. This is how we know if we have love for the brothers. This is how we know if, you know, if we're not worldly, you know, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. You know, it's holiness, separation. So First John is just given for that kind of thing. And so you look at that and you say, I just see these things in my life and I just see these changes that have happened and I just cannot take credit for them. I just can't. These are things that the Holy Spirit has done. And then thirdly, it's that subjective sense that the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirits that we are children of God. You just know. The Holy Spirit just speaks to you that you are a, a, you know, a daughter or a son of the living God. Now, your question more specifically is how can you know that the works are really done in you by God and not something you're doing on your own? And I think that really comes from studying human nature from the scriptures, studying what are our reasons for doing things apart from God. You can get a good education on humanity from the Bible. That's one of the reasons it was given, also that we would learn God. And so the more you start, and then you, then you take the scriptures and you apply them rightly to yourself. And you are supposed to think about yourself. You're supposed to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith, right? You're supposed to test yourself. You're supposed to know yourself. You're supposed to consider yourself. You're supposed to do all this stuff with yourself. So you're supposed to take the Bible back inward. And you say, is it really even possible that this yearning I have for holiness is something that my flesh has generated? It's impossible. There's no way. That's just not part of the sin nature. The yearning I have to be in a world where there is no more evil and that I wouldn't be evil myself and that I wouldn't be tempted at all. Where does that come from? That's something only God could have worked in me and that kind of thing. So you start to identify those things that really are children of God, the good works that God has born in you. And so this brings me, it's a beautiful question you asked. I love your question. It's a good question. I like it. Where it says in John chapter 3, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has, been, has done has been done through God. So in other words, that individual says, these works, this thing that I am, God did it. And to God be the glory for it. So, yes, go ahead. Um, I would also say it's <coughs> possible to become prideful um, that, oh, God is doing all this in me, and I'm not doing this on my own strength. And we can nip that in the bud simply by confessing to Jesus, the, to the Lord, that... Um, you know, Lord, I don't know whether I've done this in my own strength or I don't know whether you've done it through me and it doesn't matter. I'm just trusting you to keep on working in me and uh, my pride comes up and I start to get prideful that, you know, you did all this. And um, So you can just confess if you're unsure. It's a good point. Then he's just going to carry you on and eventually you won't have that question because you're going to be mm-hmm. with him in glory and you won't have that question anymore. Yeah, I think I think is it's just such a good answer. And the more you think about it, you realize that there, we don't do anything purely in this world. There, none of our works are pure. All of our works need fixing up, you know, purifying. And isn't it grace from God that He's going to give us some crowns to lay at His feet? Isn't it grace from God that we're actually going to be praised in some way by God? What is there in us to praise? You know, and yet He's going to do it. And He's not going to do it foolishly and all that. He's going to do it to His own glory the praise of his glory, but still in some way he's going to reward us and all that. And boy, do our works need fixing up. And if you don't think your works really need fixing up, just wait a while, be sanctified a little bit, just go on in the Christian life and then look again at your works and just know them. And then you'll know uh, that they're mixed things that really need a lot of grace. So, you know, for me, I think the more I go on in my Christian life, the less I trust in my own works as I stand before God. I know that there's nothing worth 
worthy. Nothing that could survive that holy gaze. You know, guys, God's eyes are pure. His eyes are like blazing fire, it says in Revelation chapter 1. That's Jesus. How, how could any of our works survive that kind of gaze? None, none of them can. So, Well, really, could, could keep going on holiness for a while, but let's go ahead and talk about peace. All right, Peace or order, that's weird. But that's what they have in the book, so we'll talk about it. I would never have done that, but you know that's why we sit at the feet of great teachers like Wayne Grudem. So he gives us a definition of peace. God's peace means that in God's being and in his actions, he is separate from all confusion and disorder. Yet he is continually active in innumerable, well-ordered, fully controlled, simultaneous actions. All right, that's fine. I mean, that's good. I, I think basically the implication there is that sin has brought chaos into the universe. Sin had an explosive force. You know, like you think about a fragmentation grenade. That's what sin did to the universe. What God is doing is putting it back together. You see this in Ephesians 1, how God might bring all things together under one head, even Christ, right? Or in in 1 Corinthians 15, how, how, um, you know, it says that uh, he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And then when he's put all his enemies under his feet, He'll basically, this is, my, this is my paraphrase, wrap up the universe, Jesus will, and give it back to God so that God may be all in all. You see what I'm saying? <clears throat> That's reversing the explosive fragmentation aspect of sin. Sin breaks things apart that were meant to be together. You see what I'm saying? It, it just breaks things apart, relationships and, and, and people and, and the creation and the decay and chaos and all that. But God has never been touched by any of that. You you think about it that way. God is completely, perfectly well put together. He's just perfectly orderly. And within himself, he's at peace always. Isn't that beautiful? And you just think about that. God on his throne, completely at peace. That's good for, for us to know because there are some really chaotic moments in our lives. Some of the worst might have to do with sudden deaths or shocking trials or other things that come. To meditate at times like that on the fact that God is completely at peace on his throne and, and, and not, not in the Buddha sort of sense where he doesn't even know who you are and you can't bother him because he doesn't care about you. <laughs> He's just into his own little peace thing. That's not the God of the Bible. God is completely aware of what you're going through and completely compassionate and yet completely at peace with that. I mean, that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? And what does that do for us as Christians? Well, Philippians 4, 6 and 7 talks about that. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Well, what will happen if you do that? Well, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You'll be at peace too. So that's a beautiful thing. We've already gotten to the communicable side of this attribute, but let's talk about God as a peaceful being. God at peace what a, what a f- fruitful meditation that is. God seated on his throne at peace. It says in 1 Corinthians 14.33, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. That may be Wayne Grudem's number one verse for why he chose order as equal to peace. Okay, and that's a good verse. I mean, God isn't a God of disorder. And so what is order to God? Well, it's whatever God says is orderly. He gets to define things. I really think that's why submission is so important for us because God really has a pecking order. He really did make archangels and angels. And they each need to be just okay with that, you know? Because that's an eternal thing. I just think they're going to be archangels and just regular angels in heaven. 
and they're going to be like arc people and regular people in heaven too. And, and so we're going to just have to really be okay with that. And so the essence of like lack of submission is lack of peace. You know, people who aren't submissive are, are people that are not peaceful because they're, they're, there's a clamoring inside themselves. Um, you know, I think that's what it says in James 3. It says, where you have selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Why do you think it says disorder? Because that's literally what happens. When people are ambitious for something God isn't giving them, they jump out of their place. You know, I was thinking about this. I've had numerous uh, occasions to think about that. One was uh, I had the privilege of being involved in a wedding uh, and reading some scripture. And I wasn't actually performing the wedding, but I was reading scripture in the wedding. And I remember thinking about that. Weddings are like little plays with like everyone's got little lines to say. And, and you, you know, you have the rehearsal to the play and, and whatever. And there's, there was a, a time that came when I stood up from my pew and walked up to a certain place and read this scripture. And that was totally fine. If I had done that 10 minutes before, or if I'd waited and thought it would be better to do it 10 minutes after, that would have been disorderly and caused great stress to the bride and her mother, um, <laughs> probably to others as well. But I mean, the fact is, there was a time and a place for me to get up and go do that reading. And for me at that point after the reading, say, you know, I just, I just feel like I just want to stop right now and just say some things that are just, just special to me. And, and just, you know, that would have been disorderly. And I didn't do it, all right? Because I was there to minister peace. And peace has to do with order. And it has to do with knowing your place. And, and the thing is, was that not beautiful? Isn't it beautiful to have that? And, and why would it be more beautiful if we all just kind of freelance the wedding? Just everyone show up and just kind of do what feels good at that moment, you know? A chaotic wedding, you know? Would that actually be more beautiful? I would say it would be less beautiful. And so I think heaven's going to be kind of like that wedding. Everything's going to be orderly. And everyone will kind of know their place and know their time. And it's going to be beautiful in that way. There's just an orderliness to this. And God has that order. You know, you think about it this way. Um, think about the centurion when um, he says to Jesus, come and heal my servant. Jesus says, I will come and heal him. And he says, you don't need to come. But just give the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. See, you're like an emperor, Jesus. You don't need to come. Just give the word. And uh, Jesus says, you know, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. And, and so he says, many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the centurion with this whole hierarchical view and all that, he understands the way it really will be in heaven better than anyone I've found in Israel. You may go, your servant is healed. It's done. And, and so what's going on on earth? Chaos, disorder, fractured situations because we aren't content and peaceful with where God's placed us. And so we're clamoring for something else. Won't it be nice to be free from that? Won't it be nice to be happy with whatever God gives you? The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance and you're happy with it. I think it's a beautiful thing. So God isn't a God of disorder, but he's a God of peace. And this is talking in 1 Corinthians 14 about what? What's the context there? Yeah, speaking in tongues and prophecy are the, are the two issues he's dealing with there. And specifically there, he's talking about, about uh, prophets speaking out of order. And he's saying, just so you know, you don't, don't blame the gift 
Okay? I couldn't help it. It was the gift. He said, look, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. So don't, don't blame the gift. I'm just telling you that when I give you a word, you will be able to wait until the appropriate time. And at the right time, when the other prophet is done speaking, then you can speak. You see what I'm saying? For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. That's the point. There's an orderliness then to the worship service. But it's coming, do you not see it? Right out of the character of God. This is what God loves. He loves order and he loves this kind of peace, etc. And then uh, Romans 15:33, the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So God is at peace. And so we have order. Uh, Genesis 2:1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. Do you not see the beautiful orderliness to Genesis 1, the six days of creation, everything done in its perfect way, in its perfect place, everything just beautiful, perfect. God saw that it was very good. Or this one, Numbers 22 uh, two and verse 17. Numbers 2:17. Then the tent of meeting and the camp of the Levites will set out in the middle of the camps. They will set out in the same order as they encamp each in his own place under his own standard. You got to read the whole chapter. God's got the whole thing organized. I mean, really well organized. It's very convicting to me, okay? <laughs> when I go to my desk drawer, you know? When I go and look in my, in my dresser and it's not so well organized as the Lord did in Leviticus 2. Everything there, very, very well organized. So, at any rate. So, Satan is the god of this world, especially in causing extreme disorder and chaos uh, because he is restless himself. Isn't he like the ultimate, first and foremost, restless being? Isn't he the upwardly mobile one? The one who's not satisfied with his place? Isn't he the one that has created all of this disorder and chaos? He is really the god of chaos. He's the god of disorder. That's what he is. And um, he creates a restlessness in people's hearts. Roaming restlessness. You see that in Matthew 12, verse 43, Jesus said, when an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. I find it fascinating that Jesus knows the psychology of a demon as it's roaming. He's studied and searched the heart of the demon. I know what you're looking for. I also know what you'll never find. You're looking for rest. You walked away from rest and peace when you rebelled against me. And we see the sovereignty of God and that he has provided no way for them to be peaceful. They will never be peaceful. And, uh, and yet he has provided a gospel to make us peaceful. Isn't that wonderful to bring us peace with God? Isn't that the first thing Jesus said in his resurrection body to his disciples? Peace be with you. I've brought everything back in order by dying on the cross and by this resurrection. Peace be with you. It's a beautiful thing. And so Satan is a roaming being. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. The wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So if you're feeling restless, just know that's from Satan, okay? That restlessness is not from God. Fruit of the Spirit is peace. God brings peace to our hearts. And so therefore, you've got to fight it by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the promises and the Word of God and until you bring your heart back into a peaceful state again because the outcome is definitely sin. You know, when you get restless, it just leads to sin. Isn't that what happened with the prodigal son? Isn't that why he left his father's home? Father's home was no better at the end of the journey than it was at the beginning, <laughs> but it's sure looking better. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I have to say, I just was reading uh, what Jesus said um, to his disciples <clears throat> at some point, but I have a baptism to be baptized with, and oh, I wish that I had, that it were already completed mm-hmm. or something. So yeah, how, yeah. isn't there sometimes a restlessness that comes from mm-hmm. wanting a little more? There is, I think, but I, I do believe that that uh, is tied to sin as well. 
Um, you know, isn't Satan, I mean, sorry, isn't, sorry, the Apostle Paul kind of anxious and concerned over the churches that he planted to be certain that Christ is really formed in them and that he didn't labor in vain. So I think Jesus' attitude there is like, I'm yearning, I'm yearning for the redemptive plan to be finished. And I think that's it. And I don't think there's anything wrong or amiss with God yearning for things or God desiring things that aren't here yet. So he yearns for them. And so I think that's, that's fine. God is yearning for them. But I don't look on that as disorderly. I still think it's part of God's orderly progression of the redemptive plan, isn't it? God, there, there was an order. We had to have Jesus die first and then the resurrection, not the resurrection and then the death. You know, there's, there's an order to things and then the coming of the Holy Spirit and then the spread of, spread of the gospel and all that. So it's got an orderly to it. I, th- I just read that, Susan, as yearning and desire for it all to be consummated. That's what I get out of that. And also the, just the immense weight of the cross. I think Jesus lived his whole life under the shadow of the cross. You think about that. I have a baptism to undergo. I'm like in a straitjacket until I'm free. You know, how long had he been under that? I would say from eternity past, from when he agreed to be the substitute for the world. <clears throat> that's how long he'd been under the shadow of the cross. And that's, that's almost what's an infinite burden. It's just amazing to me. It wasn't like, oh, wait, I'm going to the cross. No, he knew, and he'd known his, his whole life in a mysterious sort of way. I know he had to learn that. Okay, So, all right, we have six or seven minutes. Let's go ahead and finish. God will someday, dear friends, destroy Satan and he will bring an end to all chaos. He's going to be very orderly about it too. He's going to put it all in one place. <laughs> God, I mean. you know, He's going to put it all in the lake of fire. Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Don't you see an orderliness to that? You rebelled, you get the same punishment. You go to the same place. You know, I often, I don't know what that's like or how I could even imagine being in the lake of fire with Satan. I don't, I can't even imagine what that would be like. Um, but it says in Romans 6.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Do you see that? So there's a connection there between peace and the crushing of Satan. The God of peace will crush the God of disorder. <laughs> that's how it's going to work. And they're not equal. I don't want you to imply that I believe in a dualistic universe. Not at all. I'm just saying that he's going to destroy the one who has caused disorder. And then I already quoted this, 1 Corinthians 15. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. And when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. That's a very organized putting together of everything. Really, really amazing. If you think about it, have you ever taken, have you ever taken a big complex thing like a computer or whatever out of its package, completely out of its package, decided you didn't want it and then tried to put it back in its package? I mean, have you ever done that? Have you ever tried to do it? And you're like, there is no way all of that fit in that box, but I saw it with my own eyes. It did, but I don't know how to do it. You know, it's pretty complicated. I'm telling you what, those packaging engineers are geniuses. I mean, how to make it small and still be able to be banged around kind of by UPS and survive and all that. They've got a whole thing figured out. But it's hard to do. It's really hard to do. How much more than the universe for God to put it all back together so perfect and orderly is really astonishing. To God be the glory for that. How is peace a communicable attribute? We've been really doing it the whole time we've been studying peace. Uh, We are to have peace. We are to know the peace of God. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we've been studying this at our men's Bible study. We just got into Romans 5, and I made a distinction between uh, peace with God 
and the peace of God. Those are to some degree different but related. Peace with God is a status of peace that we have through our faith in Christ in which God is no longer our enemy but is now our adoptive father. That's his status with us and it doesn't change. It never changes. It can't improve. It's a binary. It's God's at peace with you or he's not. It's not like God's more at peace with you now because you're doing better. You know, it has nothing to do with that. God is at peace with you in Christ. That's what Romans 5 1 says. Isn't that beautiful? So since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So that's peace with God. Philippians 4, I already quoted, is the peace of God, which I define as a qualitative sense of peacefulness in your heart, a feeling of peace, a sensation of peace. A feeling that everything's orderly, things are okay, that God is in charge, that it's the peace of God, the peace that characterizes God is guarding your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus, keeping all the enemies away so that you're at peace with what's going on. And that does come and go, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't that come and go? It does. We're not always at peace. There are some times we're really not at peace. Okay, so uh, Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Context there is let's not trouble each other with our matters of conscience. That's about meat sacrifice to idols and all that. You know, don't trouble your brother by what you eat or drink. Kingdom of God's about peace. Let's, let's protect the peace of the body of Christ. And uh, Galatians 5, fruit of the Spirit is peace. And then uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Finally, brothers, goodbye. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Okay, so there should be peace. What a great scandal it is when churches squabble and fight and divide with each other. There really should, we should be a, a, a demonstration of peace. Demonstration of peace. Okay? So, good order then in personal and church life glorifies God. Disorder comes from the devil and our sinful natures. We already quoted James 3.16. Where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. And then 2 Corinthians 12.20. For I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. He said, that's not the way a church should be. All right? God then works good order into us as a part of his kingdom. Romans 13.1, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. In no way could it possibly be construed that Jesus established his disciples, his apostles, as revolutionaries who are overthrowing the Sanhedrin and the Roman government. There's no way you could even conceive of that. There's no history of that. They were persecuted. They were preaching. They were living their lives in peacefulness and godliness. They were spreading the gospel. That's what they were doing. It was pretty revolutionary, but in a whole different way. They were not insurrectionists. They were called on to submit, clearly to submit. Uh, Romans 13, 13, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissensions and jealousy. That's all disorderly. All right, Colossians 2, 5. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. And 1 Corinthians 14, 40, everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. So that's what happens when we become Christians, when we grow. That happens in families. There's order in family. Don't you just sense the peace of a well-ordered family? When, when the husbands and the wives and the children follow their God-ordained roles, there's just a peacefulness there. And when they don't, there isn't. There's disorder. And so also in a church. 
Final questions, yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say, talking about God being the God of order, I think it's really interesting to contemplate a lot of our modern art forms. Um, there's a lot of confusion and disorder mm -hmm. and chaos and how our culture has embraced it and praises it. Mm -hmm. um, I remember in my literature class last semester, there was one entire chapter that was devoid of punctuation, capitalization, and just a whole bunch of words, and how my mm -hmm. professor thought it was the most interesting chapter. And really? And how that is... Well, in one sense, though, in one sense, that's great because you can give anything for your essay, your final paper. Seriously, you can you know, break all the rules of grammar. You can do no research at all. No research at all. Well, he's not going to be consistent. Hey, seriously, try this at Outback. What do they say at Australian Outback? What's their slogan? All right, no rules, right? No rules. Try that. Go ahead and try it. Every time I go there, there's this long line. I hate that. I'm going to skip it. I'm going to skip it. I'm going to go and say, this is the seat we want you out. And then, you know, try all that. Uh, you know what will happen? I'm going to get arrested. That's what will happen. So it's just a ridiculous throwaway slogan. I don't even know what it means. It's like, I, don't, I, I know, notice that you don't have such and such in your menu. Would you go make it for me? Well, what do you mean? I, I, it's not here on your menu, but I would like such and such. Would you mind doing that? I don't see sushi. Would you mind? We don't, we don't serve sushi. Well, what's this whole no rules thing? You know, we, get, we have a menu. This is what we do. All right. So it doesn't, doesn't even mean anything. So let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this, uh, this evening that we've had to study tonight. And I pray, Father, that you would teach us. Lord, teach us to be at peace. So much of peace is just accepting your wisdom and accepting your ways and not fighting against it or thinking we know better. God, you are such a wise and a loving God. I pray that we'd be at peace in your providence, that we'd be at peace in what you have willed for our lives and not fight it, but embrace it and, um, and to accept whatever you do because you know what you're doing. And um, we trust in you, Lord. Thank you that you're at peace, that you're not daunted by the challenges that the church faces or that the world that's going on in the world, that you're completely at order and peace with yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.